Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Reiaho. Welcome to Black Sheep. Just a warning, today's episode discusses child abuse and infanticide. Please listen with care. It might not be the kind of thing you want younger ears hearing. Also, one of today's interviews had to be recorded on a slightly dodgy Zoom call due to the COVID-19 lockdown, so apologies in advance for the audio quality. Since we've been making Black Sheep, there's one name people keep sending me. One woman everyone wants an episode about. Minnie Dean, the baby farmer of Winton, the only woman to be hanged in New Zealand history, the cold-blooded killer who adopted kids for cash, then murdered them and buried them in her garden. She's the villain of dozens of songs and poems, including this track we're listening to right now, which was released in 2013 by Marlon Williams. The story of Minnie Dean is shrouded by more than a hundred years of rumour and legend. When the author Lindley Hood set out to write her biography, she travelled all over Southland collecting some of these folk stories. You can read more in Lindley's book, Minnie Dean, Her Life and Crimes, but here's some of what she heard. I can remember kids at school talking about how Minnie Dean used to hide babies inside hat boxes. She used to torture them by sticking hat pins through the sides. My grandma used to say, you kids behave yourself or I'll send you to Minnie Dean. She used a knitting needle. I grew up with the story that she killed babies by sticking a knitting needle through that soft spot on the top of their head. Minnie Dean will get ya. Minnie Dean will get ya. <laughs> I can remember kids chanting that at school. It was fascinating. My late husband, uh, he was raised in Queenstown, but his grandparents were in Gore. And whenever he and his brothers went to stay with them, he said, Grandma used to say, you kids behave yourselves or I'll send you to Minnie Dean. And he really didn't have much idea who Minnie Dean was, but she was certainly like the witch in Hansel and Gretel to... <laughs> small children in the Southland for a long time. In fact, Lindley Hood says one popular myth about Minnie Dean, that she killed babies using hat pins or knitting needles, seems to have been lifted directly from old stories about witches. To quote one 17th century writer, Witches are said to sacrifice their own children to the devil before baptism, holding them up in the air unto him, and then thrust a needle into their brain. The true story of Minnie Dean 
is far more complex than the Wicked Witch in Hansel and Gretel. It's also more tragic. Many arrived in Invercargill in the early 1860s. We don't know exactly which year. She was in her late teens or early 20s. She told people she was the widow of an Australian doctor and the daughter of a Presbyterian minister back in Scotland. That story wasn't true. But as historian Barbara Brooks explains, it was pretty common for new migrants to lie about their backgrounds. You know, I think that's one of the the big attractions of migration, uh, is that people could reinvent themselves. I think people are often wanting to make themselves seem more important and create. I mean, we all do it to a we degree. We all do it to a degree. I mean, yeah. when, when you move to a new job or, you know, you start uni or you change yeah. schools, everyone has a you know has those moments where they're like, here's a chance for me to sort of have a bit of a redo. On, That's right. Yeah. yeah, I didn't like that kind of nerdy kid I was at high school, so now <laughs> I'm going to be a sort of a outrageous type. But, but certainly, yeah, colonial society offered interesting ways to reinvent oneself. And Minnie had more reasons than most to reinvent herself, because she didn't come to New Zealand alone. She brought her young daughter, Alan, with her, and she was pregnant with a second daughter, Isabel. There's very little information about Minnie's early life, but Lindley Hood found records suggesting she gave birth to her first child in Tasmania, shortly after leaving her family home in Scotland. She was only 16 years old. And she'd gone to Tasmania by herself. I have no idea of the circumstance, but maybe she was pregnant and got sent off to the colonies because she was bringing the family to shame. I, re- I really don't know the circumstances, but um, there she was. Minnie signed those Tasmanian records with her maiden name, McCulloch, which suggests both her children were illegitimate. That was a big deal in Victorian-era society. Women with illegitimate children were guilty of the sin of fornication, and that made it difficult to find jobs or husbands or just any kind of normal social life. Minnie's white lie about a dead husband allowed her to dodge all that social baggage. And she probably had some help along the way. Minnie had a famous aunt in New Zealand. She's best known as Granny Kelly, one of the founding settlers of Invercargill. It must have been her aunt in Invercargill who really put her arms around her and supported her and spread the story that she was the widow of a doctor and the daughter of a clergyman because her aunt would have known the truth. So... Minnie had a tricky start to life, but she spent the next eight years making the most of a second chance. She became a governess and married a farmer called Charles Dean. They set up a pub near Riverton on the road to the Otago goldfields. The pair stood to make a pile of cash from thirsty miners off to seek their fortune. Minnie's daughters got married and left home. The couple adopted two more girls, Margaret and Esther. But then everything went wrong. The pub was on the road from Riverton to the goldfields, so in theory it was a good place to have a pub, except that not long after that the railway line went in on the other side of the Oriti River. So um, if anyone was going to the, to the goldfields, they'd be taking the train on the other side of the river and not 
stopping at the pub. What's more, the whole economy was in freefall. A credit crisis in the UK combined with a slump in wool prices triggered something which we now call the Long Depression. Minnie and Charles saw their whole livelihoods vanish in front of their eyes. The bank foreclosed on the mortgage Charles had taken to open the pub and he was declared bankrupt. It was a familiar story for lots of New Zealanders in the 1870s. Women and children were forced to work long hours in sweatshops. People sold their wedding rings and tools. Mothers sewed clothes from flower bags. Children had to sleep in the streets under old sacks. Luckily, Minnie and Charles had Granny Kelly to fall back on. She bailed out her niece and nephew-in-law, gave them enough money to buy a house and a bit of land just outside Winton at a place called The Larches. They planted fruit trees, stocked the land with cows. But then disaster hit again. Then the larches bent to the ground. And a man, that I, th- I think it was the owner of the property that owed money to, he came and took away all the, the fruit trees. Minnie and Charles managed to scrape together enough cash to build a ramshackle house at the Larches, but they were on the brink of financial ruin. And then, Minnie was hit by yet another tragedy. In 1882, one of her daughters with her two small children, I think they were about 10 months and about two years old, they were all found drowned down the well. The death of Minnie's eldest daughter, Ellen, and her grandchildren, it must have been devastating. It seems almost certain the deaths were a murder-suicide, but officially they were recorded as unexplained. Lindley Hood says that's probably because the community wanted to make sure Ellen got a Christian burial, which wouldn't have been possible if her death was ruled a suicide. So... Here we have Minnie Dean in the 1880s, recently bereaved, destitute, living in a hovel in Winton with two adopted daughters and no real source of income. Charles was bankrupt, which made it difficult for him to find a job of any description. So, um, yeah, Minnie um, began taking unwanted babies as a way of earning money. There's no easy description for what Minnie Dean was doing in modern terms. Maybe you'd call it a one-woman orphanage or a long-term childcare service. But in Minnie's day, people had another term for what she was doing. Baby farming. It's difficult to define baby farming. There were no real laws around childcare at the time, so it's hard to say where legitimate childcare ends and baby farming begins. Put simply, a baby farmer was a person who adopted babies for money, usually illegitimate children or kids whose parents couldn't afford to keep them. They'd promise to raise the child and find them a family to adopt or maybe just keep them for a few months or years while the parents got back on their feet. But at least some of these baby farmers failed to deliver on their side of the deal. Instead of raising the children, they simply took their parents' money, then killed them. We don't know exactly how common this was. But some of the cases we do know about 
are horrific. One of the most famous was Amelia Dyer in Bristol in the UK. She was convicted of murdering six babies, but it's suspected there were many more victims. Possibly hundreds. But the actual threat baby farmers posed to children was massively overhyped by Victorian society. Here's how Lindley Hood puts it in her book. Infanticide certainly occurred. Between 1855 and 1860, London coroners found verdicts of murder on 1,120 infants. During 1870, London police found bodies of 276 newborn babies in the Thames, in canals, ponds, under railway arches, on doorsteps, in cellars, under hedges, in the streets. Court reports suggest many, perhaps most, were abandoned, but Victorian authorities had too much respect for the sanctity of the family to acknowledge the implications of such evidence, so it was the baby farmers who got the blame. Baby farmers were a convenient scapegoat for all kinds of moral and social problems. Baby farmers were taking the blame for the sin of fornication, you know. If they weren't there to take these babies that nobody wanted, (laughs) then young people would be more careful or show more respect for good behaviour. To me, this feels a little bit like modern arguments about contraceptives and abortion. And as Barbara Brooks points out, baby farmers were also a great way for the upper classes to avoid responsibility for much more significant causes of infant death. If you think about the crowding in the slums of London or in Scotland, where Minnie Dean comes from and from Greenock, the sanitary conditions are absolutely appalling. Mm. London's done something to improve its water supply after the great cholera outbreaks of the mid-19th century. But often, you know, cesspools, uh, before they they built adequate sewage, uh, were adjacent to wells where people drew their drinking water. So if they're they're feeding their infants pap and they're mixing it with water, Mm. the chances of children dying are very high. Minnie Dean had personal experience of this. When she was a little girl living in a crowded tenement in Scotland, three of her own sisters had died, probably from scarlet fever or typhoid. The upper classes were the people who were the landlords. Mm. So they were not so inclined to pay for the sanitary improvements required. There's a tenement house in New York City that you can visit now, which is pristine, because when legislation was introduced in the early 20th century that you had to provide a toilet for each tenement, the landlord just boarded the place up. Because hmm. it was just cheaper not to. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, there are interesting class interests in maintaining the status quo. You know, to convince ratepayers that they have to start spending money on sewage infrastructure. Mm. It's much easier for those people just to blame individuals. Well, if they lived properly, this wouldn't happen. Whether their fears were justified or not, Victorian society was on high alert for any hint of baby farming. And that social anxiety made its way to New Zealand through the newspapers, which frequently printed baby farming stories from the UK. 
Mrs Waters, the Brixton baby farmer, has been sentenced to death and executed. Another baby farmer, Francis Rogers, was sentenced at the Manchester Assizes to 20 years penal servitude. Mary Linton, the baby farmer at Maitland, has been sentenced to one year's imprisonment for making a false declaration. A baby farmer named Augusta Gramage was lately sentenced to 10 years penal servitude for feloniously slaying a young child that had been entrusted to her care. There is a charge of murder against a baby farmer, one Agnes Norman, and another, one Francis Mays, has received a penal sentence of 20 years. The newspapers had found cases in the United Kingdom and in Australia where these terrible babies farmers did take in babies and then kill them. So the New Zealand police were, as they tend to be, very excited about this new threat and rushing around trying to find evidence of it existing in New Zealand. The police weren't the only ones on high alert. Mr D Nicholl was a newsagent on the South Express, which travelled from Invercargill to Christchurch on the main trunk line. And while he was on those voyages, he couldn't help but notice a particular passenger who regularly rode first class. Mrs Minnie Dean, about 40 to 45 years old, spoke with a slight lisp and wore dark clothes. But Mr Nicholl also noticed something strange about Mrs Dean. When she was travelling north, she almost always travelled alone. But when she came back home, she often had a baby with her. And he's probably reading in the paper about these notorious British baby farmers. And he thinks, oh, could that be what's happening here? Because these stories were sensational and all through the papers, people love these kind of tales of woe and misery. You know, as we mentioned earlier, they, they grow out of those tropes about wicked stepmothers and the fairy tale of the, the murdering mother. Mm. Uh, you know, he's probably got a framework from reading the paper He's the news agent. Yeah. <laughs> They're all laid out in front of him. And he starts fitting her into that framework mm. when he sees her getting on and off trains with babies or without babies. So Mr Nicholl tipped off the police who launched into action. They raided her house at the Larches and found 11 children. Some of their clothes were dirty and a couple seemed like they might be sick, but... Officers didn't find any evidence of abuse or neglect. It certainly didn't look like Minnie was immediately murdering the children who passed through her hands. In fact, Minnie didn't seem anything like the baby farmers in the newspaper stories. She seemed to genuinely care for the children. In a statement she wrote before her execution, she said this. If they were poorly clad, I couldn't help it. I'd have clad them in gold if I'd had it. But if poorly clad, they were well fed and as happy as children could be. Now, you might see that as self-serving, but it was backed up by Margaret and Esther, the girls Minnie and Charles had adopted years earlier and who helped care for the children at the Larches. By this point, they were teenagers. 
In fact, while Lin Lee Hood was writing her book, she was approached by a woman who believed she was descended from Margaret. And she brought Margaret Cameron's marriage certificate and I got out Margaret Cameron's signature on the inquest report and the, and the signatures matched perfectly. And so she went back to an old aunt and said, you don't have to pretend anymore. I, I know Grandma was raised by Minnie Dean. And her old aunt said, well, your, your grandmother was much loved and much cared for by Minnie Dean. And, and at the time of her arrest, a lot of people in the paper, in the local paper, were saying they really liked her and she cared so well for the children. So it seems like Minnie had good intentions caring for children. But by the early 1890s, things were starting to go off the rails. Her life was just unravelling because Charles, he, he did do a bit of casual work around the place, but he never really had much of an income. And Minnie was like these people who take lots of stray cats and dogs but haven't got a very realistic idea of how they're going to look after them all. So when ever she was approached by a servant girl who isn't able to look after this baby she's had in secret, Minnie would take them for, you know, five years or whatever until the mother got on her feet or found a man who would also take in her child. Um, so in theory, it was a temporary arrangement, and in theory, it was for a certain sum of money, either monthly or a lump sum. But a lot of the time, she never got paid. Consider the conditions Minnie was working with. There were up to 11 children in the house for Minnie to care for at any one time all under five years old. One of the girls had a serious physical disability. Another young boy may have had an intellectual disability. Minnie's two adopted daughters helped her out, but it was still a huge amount of work. There was no infant formula in those days, so she had to feed the infants raw cow's milk. The home had dirt floors. It was probably drafty and cold. Kids got sick and, inevitably... Some of them died. The baby that Charles and Minnie had adopted died in their care, and that was all over the newspapers. Police demanded a coronial inquest into this child's death, but Minnie was found totally blameless. The doctor gave evidence that he'd seen the baby and it had a severe chest infection and that Minnie had sent for him again on the Saturday night, but he didn't come because he didn't want to go out on a horrible night and the baby had died overnight, but there was absolutely no sign of any ill treatment, whatever, in fact, they I think the doctor reported that the baby was well cared for and well looked after in the time that Minnie had her. But the police were still deeply suspicious of Minnie Dean. And nationwide, anxieties about baby farming were reaching new heights as cases appeared closer to home. In 1892, 
a baby farm was uncovered in Sydney. Almost every day now, some new development of a horrifying character is brought to light by the police in connection with the Macon baby farming case. Hundreds of people gathered in the street, lined the fences and crowded even the housetops to watch the police at work. The two bodies found bring the total up to 15 unearthed so far. The next year, there was another case. The bodies of three infants have been unearthed at Brunswick, a suburb of Melbourne. The police believe they are on the track of an extensive system of baby farming, which will probably exceed that carried out by the Macons in Sydney. Minnie was regularly interviewed and inspected by the police. Their relationship became increasingly hostile. In her first brush with the law, that inquest we mentioned earlier, Minnie Dean had cooperated fully. She even gave the cops some of the names of the children's parents. But she seems to have believed those names would stay secret. And when she found out police had interviewed some of the parents, she was furious. They will never have truth from me again. If they'd kept faith with me, I'd have kept faith with them. So from there on in, she's very um, unwilling to give them information. And one of her concerns, which I think people suggest she hides behind in the, in the actual trial, is that she undertakes confidentiality. You know, if a woman give her an illegitimate child, she undertakes to give it a new identity, really. By the mid-1890s, Minnie is under incredible stress, financially, legally and personally, ever since that coronial inquest she'd become a social pariah. And while the number of babies in her house dropped a bit after the inquest, she was still trying to adopt more, still putting ads in the papers for unwanted babies under assumed names, still taking payments. Financially, things were just getting worse and worse. Lindley Hood puts it like this in her book. Minnie should have realised that her plans to use babies as fundraising units would never work. In the long term, each new baby, even when fully financed, turned out to be more of a liability than an asset. Or maybe she kept going because, in the short term, the money that came with each new arrival temporarily alleviated her ongoing cash flow problems. Maybe she also kept going because taking babies was her life and she didn't have the energy and inclination to change. Also, each time she went out on a trip to get a new baby, Minnie got a break from the day-to-day reality of childcare. Train travel and the picking up of children gave her a life apart from the muddle, confusion, crying, dirt, endless chores that looking after a number of children in a hovel involved. Uh, She liked to travel by first class on the train so she could imagine herself again as a respectable person. She stayed at a boarding house or a lodging house where she could probably have a room to herself and get a decent night's sleep without children crying and demanding things from her. So there's a way in which she keeps sort of seeking out children, believing, I think, that she's probably doing a social service, but also getting some respite from the the Mm. conditions at home. I mean, Lindley Hood actually describes her as sort of having potentially two addictions, one or three addictions, sorry, one to one to um, to raising young children, and another to train travel. Train travel, and the third is to gardening. Yeah, yeah, 
The more I thought about the conditions in that hovel and the longer the time she takes, well, partly because of the train timetables, you know, she has to stay over at places. I thought, oh, she just must have loved that peace, peace and quiet. But ironically, this place where Minnie found the most peace was the place where she was under the heaviest surveillance. That news agent on the train, Mr Nickel, he was still keeping close tabs on Minnie Dean, reporting her movements to the cops. At one point in Christchurch, she was confronted by police after being paid to take away a child, then forced to return it to the parents. Both the police and the parents claimed this child's condition had deteriorated significantly after just a few days in Minnie's care. It's a bit unclear whether that accusation was true or not. What is clear is that children were vanishing from the larches. As far as we can tell, a total of 27 children passed into Minnie's hands over the years. 18 of those kids were never seen again. Minnie claimed most of these missing kids were adopted, but she refused to give any details to the police. There's one case where a mother gave her two-month-old son to Minnie Dean, then returned six weeks later to find he'd vanished. Minnie responded to this distraught mother with a torrent of denial and abuse. She claimed she'd never met the woman before. Probably the truth is that many of these children got sick and died. Then Minnie buried them secretly to avoid more brushes with the law. But there's no real evidence either way. If all the kids who vanished from the larches died, that works out to a 68% mortality rate. Even if some of them really were adopted, it's still a very big proportion, much higher than the average Pākehā infant mortality rate at the time, which was around about 7%. But Barbara Brooks says that even if you take the higher estimates, the death rate for kids in Minnie Dean's care wasn't actually that unusual compared to other childcare institutions. We think of Ireland, actually. You know, everyone will have seen Philomena. Hmm. All those deaths of children in those graveyards at those homes. Yeah. They were unable to provide a standard of care to each individual infant that um, would keep them safe. And, uh, you know, in a way, she's got so many children, it's almost an institution, isn't it? Mm. Particularly with only the one adult carer. That's right, yeah. yeah. There are only four children who we definitely know died in Minnie's care. The first was the girl we mentioned earlier, the one who died from a chest infection. As for the other three? Well, I guess it's time to tell the most famous part of Minnie Dean's story the deaths which sealed her fate and her place in New Zealand legend. May 2nd, 1895. 
Mr Nicholl, the newsagent, was watching Minnie Dean board the train in Winton. She had a baby with her, a one-year-old girl called Dorothy Carter who she'd adopted a few days earlier. She was on her way to pick up a second baby in Bluff. Minnie was under even more pressure than normal. A year earlier, the government had introduced the Infant Life Protection Act, which meant you now had to register to care for young children. Minnie's reputation meant she had no chance of getting a licence. She'd already been prosecuted for breaking that law once, although the judge had let her off easy with a fine of just one penny. It was essential she didn't draw too much attention. And that's a hard thing to do if you have a screaming baby in your arms. But luckily, in 1895, there was a solution to that problem. It was heavily advertised in New Zealand newspapers. Advice to mothers. Are you broken in your rest by a sick child suffering with the pain of cutting teeth? Go at once to a chemist and get a bottle of Mrs Winslow's soothing syrup. It is perfectly harmless and pleasant to taste. It produces natural, quiet sleep. Now, if you're a parent, I imagine your ears might be perking up listening to this ad. Where can I find this wonderful syrup, you might be asking? Well, it hasn't been on pharmacy shelves for a very long time, for a very good reason. Mrs Winslow's soothing syrup was made from a powerful opiate called laudanum. I mean, that's the other sort of socially sanctioned thing. Laudanum you could buy from a chemist. Yeah. People gave it to their children to quieten them. Yeah. If you're travelling on a train, you don't want a child disturbing all the other passengers. We've all been on planes where people feel, <laughs> oh, I wish they'd do something to that child. They so. probably don't wish that they'd whip out a bottle full of opiates. To no, no, they, pro- they probably don't. Minnie Dean had bought a new bottle of laudanum and bluff, and she gave some to Dorothy Carter to keep her quiet on the trip. As she later explained, I have always given laudanum to children to keep them quiet when travelling. I could not do without it, for a crying child is such an annoyance to other passengers, and there would be comments made and questions asked. When I got on the train, I laid the child down on the cushions. She was asleep. After giving my ticket to the guard, I took off my cloak and put it round the child. As she was coming and train was coming into Lumsden, she looked at the baby and realised in horror that it had stopped breathing. So in a panic, she put it in her hat box and got off the train and spent the night in a room at the Lumsden Hotel. She said not one drop of sleep touched my eyes all night. I know that I was the cause of the child's death, that I'd given her an overdose of laudanum, but with no intention of causing her death. And God knows I've been punished for my negligence. The next day, Minnie had to pull herself together. 
After all, she was there to pick up another baby, a one-month-old girl called Eva Hornsby. She managed to get through that meeting. She took Eva and got on the train back home. In the middle of her voyage home, Minnie needed to switch trains. She said she rested Eva on a bench at the station while she sorted through her luggage. I was on my knees doing this when I saw the baby reeling over. I made a spring to catch her, but it was too late. The child fell to the ground and never moved again. Nobody else was at the platform where Minnie says baby Eva died, so we have no way of telling if the story's true. But Lindley Hood says it's suspicious for two reasons. First, babies as young as Eva Hornsby can't roll over on their own. So how did she manage to fall off the bench all by herself? Second, an autopsy of Eva showed she had two bruises on the back of her head, right in the places where you'd put your thumb and index finger if you were cradling a baby's head. It almost looked like someone had held that baby's head firmly in their hand while pushing down on its face. Almost as if Eva Hornsby was deliberately smothered. It's total speculation, but just for a moment, let's imagine we're in that train carriage with Minnie Dean. Imagine Minnie's state of mind. Eva's screaming and she's frantic to keep her quiet. She can't afford to draw too much attention, not with the dead body of Dorothy Carter in her luggage. Maybe she was too scared of another overdose to quiet Eva with laudanum. Maybe she was holding the baby against her, pushing its face against her shoulder to soothe it and muffle its cries. Maybe she pushed a bit too hard. an accident. Maybe it was on purpose. We'll never know. Either way, Minnie Dean was all alone with two dead babies. She could only think of one thing to do. She put Eva's body in the hat box alongside Dorothy, took the train home, and buried both of them in secret. Just as she'd probably done for other children who died in her care. This was the beginning of the end for Minnie Dean. Mr Nicol, the newsagent, had seen her get on the train at Winton with a baby and with her hat box. And he'd seen her arrive home again with a hat box, but no baby. And the box looked suspiciously heavy. 
informed the police and they rushed over to the Larchers. And she was actually arrested for murder before they'd even found a body. It wasn't until after they'd arrested her and taken her away that they started digging up her garden and found not one but two babies' bodies. So um, that was a huge sensation. In fact, police eventually found a third body. It belonged to a four-year-old boy called Willie Phelan. Many claimed he'd drowned accidentally about a year earlier. Now, Minnie Dean's name was in pretty much every newspaper in the country. Charge of infanticide. Child murder sensation. The baby farming case. Charles and Minnie Dean are charged with murder. There was a series of inquests and hearings ahead of the main trial. Every moment was covered in gory detail by the newspapers and the public galleries were jammed with people. The court in the 19th century was really a form of entertainment. You know, you've got to think about it as a local drama space, really, that people go along there to be enthralled. You know, now we've got television, radio, the internet, and we don't need to go to court uh, for drama. But, you know, people would crowd in the 19th century to the Dunedin court for breach of promise cases, for example, you know, where where a man hadn't honoured his intention to marry a woman. Yeah. they just loved going in and hearing all the details of these sordid cases. So. I mean, people still watch, you know, the likes of Judge Judy and th- well, actually probably Judge Judy's probably not around anymore, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that kind of stuff still has a huge draw. That's right. And, I mean, I, it's kind of distasteful to make the comparison, but the whole of the nation were following the Grace Mullane mm. case in any way they could, I think. Or David Bain or any, or of, the other, Bain. any yeah. of the other. yeah. The papers covered this case with a kind of grim, twisted fascination. The story does not bear thinking of to imagine the terror of the poor doomed children left alone with a woman now charged with the murder must shake even the stoutest nerve. There was even Minnie Dean merchandise. People sold toy dolls and miniature hat boxes outside the courthouse. Seriously, if you don't believe me, go Google Minnie Dean. You'll find photos of these things. But it wasn't just about entertainment. The Minnie Dean trial landed at a crossroads in New Zealand history. It was a time of burgeoning New Zealand nationalism. Premier Richard Seddon and his Liberal Party were introducing a series of massive reforms aimed at stomping out the grinding poverty which had driven so many to emigrate from the UK in the first place. His slogan was to make New Zealand a better Britain. At the same time, women had just won the vote two years earlier and politicians like Seddon were anxious to address their concerns about moral decline. You know, it is that moment where there's sort of debate about what kind of nation are we? You know, are we the the good new colony that's going to be better than Britain? Mm. Or are we falling into the same trap? Increasingly, there's concern that a nation will be judged by the way in which it treats its most um, vulnerable, and children are those that vulnerable group. This is the time in which, in London, they set up the London Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And one of of the things that's always fascinated me, actually, is I think that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals preceded (laughs) the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. 
So there's a new emphasis on child life. And, you know, if you think about it demographically, it's kind of fascinating because from the 1860s onwards, family size is declining. Um, so by by the late 19th century, there's concern that the right people aren't reproducing and that, you know, that there's not enough children mm. Um, I mean, this is actually the days where eugenics is sort of becoming quite a big deal. Well, the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. At first, both Charles and Minnie were charged with murder. But it was pretty conclusively established that Charles never played any significant role in adopting or caring for the children. So he was acquitted ahead of the main trial. That trial would be reserved for Minnie alone. Many more outside. Oh, many accused of a serious crime. In vain desire. Although the police had the bodies of three children, they only pursued a murder charge over Dorothy Carter the baby who died from a laudanum overdose. The Crown produced a series of witnesses, including the newsagent, Mr Nicholl, and a number of rail workers who confirmed Minnie's hatbox had been light when she left, but heavy when she returned. The prosecution painted Minnie as a sinister, calculating murderer. They pointed out her long history of lying to the police. They introduced evidence of the deaths of Eva Hornsby and Willie Phelan, even though no charges were being laid over those deaths. It's pretty easy to read the subtext. Dorothy Carter was just the tip of an iceberg. Crown lawyers interrogated Minnie's adopted daughters, 15-year-old Esther and 18-year-old Margaret. Both said that when Charles was out of the house, Minnie had claimed she had to take the children to be adopted. The girls admitted they never saw the supposed adoptive parents, and the children disappeared forever. The defence had a difficult case on their hands. They were swimming against a tidal wave of prejudice. Everybody was so willing to believe that she was a baby farmer. Their main job was to pull apart all the testimony to show the holes in it and to suggest that nothing was done with evil intent. It was neglect or, you know, it was misfortune. At most it was manslaughter, not murder. But Minnie's defence was up to the task. Standing in her corner was one of the most famous defence lawyers in New Zealand history. Alf Hanlon, a six-foot-tall Irishman with a commanding presence and a flair for oratory. He'd become well-known for representing the poor, and he tore into the Crown's case. First point. If Minnie was a ruthless baby farmer, taking babies for money, then killing them, like the Crown said, why were there so many living children at the Larches? There were five living children living with Minnie Dean. Why had they not been murdered? The system seems to have fallen down somewhere. Second point. Why had Minnie looked after Dorothy Carter for two days before her death? If it was a premeditated murder, why not kill her straight away? 
She carried the little child home, put it to bed, lifted it up in the morning, and each day bathed, clothed, fed, and nursed it. Was that the action of a murderess? It is positively and absolutely absurd. Mrs. Dean took food for the child when she left the larches. She took the things to sustain the child's life, not to annihilate it. Third point. If Minnie Dean was such a cold-blooded murderer, why did her adopted daughters, Margaret Cameron and Esther Wallace, testify that she had loved and cared for them their whole lives? Look at Miss Cameron. Is this the type of girl you would expect to be dragged up in the home of a murderess? Does she not give the impression of being well-reared and well-cared for? Is Esther Wallace not well cared for and fairly well educated? How could these children be brought up like that if it was a murderess that raised them? Fourth point. Minnie Dean hadn't received any money from Dorothy Carter's family at the time she died. Why on earth would Minnie Dean kill her before she got paid? The Crown can assign no motive... Because there is none. No money was paid to Mrs Dean. And final point, how could the prosecution possibly prove Minnie had poisoned Dorothy Carter on purpose and not by an accidental overdose? And in fact, Hanlon pointed to a critical piece of evidence which might explain things. He compared the bottle of laudanum Minnie had bought in Bluff to give to Dorothy Carter to the bottle she usually had at home. The bottle they found in Minnie Dean's house was very dilute. Mm. And it may be that the the laudanum she bought from the guy in Bluff was much stronger. Mm. And she might have imagined it had the same Potency. potency as the one in the house. So you can see a situation where she goes, I know it says five drops or yeah, whatever, yeah. but I, my experience is that five drops does nothing. Yeah. And so accidentally gives a you know a very serious overdose through, through no real fault of her own. That's right. Alf Hanlon hammered these points home in a powerful closing address. The speech was recreated in a TV series about the famous lawyer in the 1980s. It's not exactly word for word, but it's close enough to give you the feeling. Look, and look again at the evidence surrounding Dorothy Carter's death. Free your minds of the rumour and sensation that has preceded this trial. Look only at the evidence. And hesitate. I implore you in the name of common justice. Hesitate. Before you put that rope around her neck. Members of the jury, Mrs. Dean is now in your hands. Thank you. The public gallery burst into applause. Court officials were stunned. The prosecution was reeling. Then, Justice Joshua Williams made an announcement. He was going to delay his summary of the case. Lindley Hood.
he didn't give his final summing up until the next day because he thought the jury would be too influenced by um, Hanlon's speech to to take on board what the the judge thought about it. And what Justice Williams seems to have thought was that Minnie Dean was guilty. His final summary gave a lot of weight to the Crown side of the argument. It even raised new arguments against Minnie which hadn't been made in the trial. That's usually a big no-no for judges. The jury deliberated for just half an hour, then returned with a unanimous verdict. Minnie Dean was guilty of murder. Justice Williams sentenced her to death. Less than two months after the trial, on August 12th, 1895, Minnie was led to the gallows at Invercargill Jail. A crowd swarmed outside, but the only people to hear her final words were the prison officials and the hangman. I have nothing to say, except that I am innocent. The noose was put around her neck. Oh God, let me not suffer. So, what do we make of the case of Minnie Jean? Honestly, if she was tried today, I find it hard to believe she'd be convicted of murder. But it's not a straightforward story. Minnie might have thought she was doing the right thing, but I can't see her in purely positive terms. She was clearly taking more children than she had the resources to care for. As Lindley Hood suggests, she seemed to have some kind of addiction to raising babies. It seems likely that she lied about the death of Eva Hornsby, the little girl she said rolled off the bench at the railway shed. And there are many other vanished children who we can't account for. Maybe they died for a disease and maybe some of them were adopted. But there's one last bit of Minnie Dean's final statement I haven't told you about. I had a hot passionate temper and have struck a blow when in a passion both with my tongue and hands that I have been sorry for directly afterwards. Yeah. Minnie confessed she sometimes beat the children in her care. Maybe that violence was a smack, the kind of thing that would have been seen as totally acceptable at the time. Maybe it was something more serious. We just don't know. But we also need to think about what might have happened if Minnie wasn't there to adopt these babies. Would their lives have been any better with parents who couldn't afford to keep them or didn't want them? After Minnie's execution, the government did take significant steps to beef up laws surrounding childcare. In 1907, the Plunkett Society was formed, and a new focus on hygiene and nutrition drastically reduced New Zealand's infant mortality rate. Maybe that's a silver lining to the story of one of New Zealand's most infamous black sheep. 
Very special thanks to my guests, Lindley Hood and Barbara Brooks. For more on Minnie Dean, I can highly recommend Lindley's book, Minnie Dean, Her Life and Crimes. Also, extra special thanks to Marlon Williams and Native Tongue Music for letting us use Marlon's song as our soundtrack. It's called The Ballad of Minnie Dean. I'll post a link to the full thing on our website. Black Sheep is written and produced by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer is William Saunders. And, in a weird coincidence, William Saunders happens to be Minnie Dean's great-great-great-grandson. So, don't get him to babysit for you. We had voice acting help from Duncan Smith, Caitlin Cherry, Jamie Tahana, John Gerritsen, Adam McCauley, Max Toll, Harry Locke and Susie Ferguson. This is the last episode of Black Sheep for this season, but we will be back with another crop of villainous and controversial Kiwis, hopefully sometime later this year. Thanks so much to all of our listeners for their support. Remember, you can always help us out with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the best ways to help new people find this show. Also, remember to go check out RNZ's other excellent content. Personally, I've been really enjoying Alice Sneddon's Bad News. It's a video series unpicking some super complicated and fraught topics like euthanasia, migrant sex workers and prisoners voting. But it's not afraid to have a whole lot of fun along the way. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.